morning. Uh, as Pastor Haynes said, we're from Louisville, Kentucky. This is my second time being here, and every time I'm here, uh, it's just a joy. You guys are such a warm and welcoming congregation. Um, so we're excited to sing with you today to our God um, through our Lord Jesus Christ. This first song may be unfamiliar to you guys. Um, it's called The Glories of Calvary. Um, so you guys can stay seated, but as uh, we sing, I'll ask you to stand and join with us. you're calling me to come and behold the wondrous cross to explore the depths of grace that came to me at such a cost where your boundless love conquered my boundless sin and mercy's arms were open wide my heart is filled with a thousand songs Proclaiming the glories of Calvary With every breath, Lord, how I long To sing of Jesus who died for me Lord, take me deeper Into the glories of Calvary Please stand with us and sing find eternal joy in the triumph of yours by our Savior's crimson flow holy wrath has been removed and your saints below join with your saints above rejoicing in the risen sing of Jesus who died for me. My heart is filled with a thousand songs, proclaiming the glories of Calvary. With every breath, Lord, how I long to sing of Jesus who died for me. Lord, take me deeper into the glories of Calvary. sing worthy our God has set us free we'll sing the glories of Calvary for all eternity we'll sing about his love for set us free we'll sing the glories of Calvary for all eternity Continue in worship. I'm going to read from the book of Psalms, um, chapter 145, verses 1 through 9. It says this <clears throat> A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and, in, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. 
They shall, bring, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. Let's sing that again. My hope is built blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but only trust in Jesus Christ alone cornerstone weak made strong in the Savior's love, through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging Every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the Christ alone, quiet soul, weak made strong.
please remain standing uh, as Katie reads to us from Romans. <clears throat> what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you'd read with me. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's pray together, could we? As we come to this time of prayer, time of confession, time of seeking His face, Reminded in Psalm 32 that the psalmist says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Of course, Paul in Romans 8, there's there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for those who come before him as we pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you and we thank you for the welcome that we receive in your presence this morning. We praise you for that, O oh Lord, for the freedom to call you Abba, Father. We adore you for assurance of your daily mercies and steadfast love. We come this morning to worship you there is no other God like you. All the other gods are but idols. None is worthy as you are to be loved with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. You know our weaknesses, and yet you do not despise us. You know our brokenness, and you will not shame us. You know our sorrows and are filled with compassion toward us. You know our foolishness and promise more grace. Holy Father, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us of hurting people we love by our impatience and irritation. Forgive me for that, Lord. By our lack of listening and our unkept promises. Forgive us for thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought and thinking of others less compassionately than we should. Well, God, forgive us for giving more power what others say about us in public than what you say about us in heaven. Forgive us for being too busy to behold your beauty in your word, to meditate on your mercies in Christ, and to hear you sing to us the gospel and in the gospel. Holy Father, have mercy on us, O oh Lord. Have mercy on me. Our hope is built, as we've already sung this morning, our hope is built on nothing less, nothing more, and nothing other than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This morning, Lord, we trust in His finished work, not in our own vain promises and commitments, 
but in Christ's righteousness, clothing us and covering our sin and sanctifying us in your truth. Father, do that work in us this day. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the word of God from the book of 1 Timothy. I give thanks to Christ our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, 
But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. You may stand as we sing.
Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, how wonderful those words are, that sometimes we don't even feel the weight and the gravity of them. Father, we're gathered together to worship you and you alone, because you, of all beings, of all things, are alone worthy of worship. Father, you are truly unparalleled. You ride through the heavens to help us. You and you alone bring grace to us. You and you alone are a God in which we can have a relationship that we can know and be known, can be heard and hear from. Father, you are a God full of kindness and compassion, wonderfully unmatched, far above the heavens. You keep your covenant faithfully, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Your righteousness, O God, it reaches beyond the heavens to the highest of heavens. And you have done great things for us. You have forgiven us of our sins through the blood of Christ. You have given us your obedience and put us on a path of obedience. You have promised us a great future. For you have gone to your father's mansion, and there you are preparing rooms for all of your children. And you will come back and call us. Father, there is truly none like you who has done great things. So, Father, we ask your blessing to be upon this offering and this church that we would be used to continue those great things that you have started and are doing. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. The testimony on my lips proclaims your endless power. Oh Lord, you've proved your faithfulness in every desperate hour. My rock, my refuge, my defense, in you my heart will stand. Your Oh 
Amen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for leading us in worship to the very throne of God's grace this morning as we come together to worship Him in spirit and truth. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6, where we have been for the last couple of months. And we're almost finished with it, but probably not quite so today. But we'll get there and get into 7 very soon. But Romans chapter 6 is a chapter that's talking about what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. As a matter of fact, there's, there's two divisions in this chapter that we've looked at. The first division is, is, is the first part that talks about our union with Christ. That we have, have come into oneness, come into union with Him And that has been demonstrated and that has been confirmed by our baptism. We have died with Him and been raised to newness of life with Him. It's been been demonstrated by our commitment of saying that we belong to Him. And so there's this idea of our union with Christ. We, We talk about how everything really in the Christian life revolves around that great truth of being in union with Christ. Then the second half of this chapter talks about our slavery to God, being a doulos of God, a slave of God. Uh, Paul makes it clear that once, in verse 16, once we were slaves of sin, now we're slaves to obedience. Once we were slaves of sin, and now we're slaves of righteousness, in verses 17 and 18. And once we were slaves of sin, but now we're slaves of God, in verses 20 through 22. He, He makes that contrast over and over again, so that we will understand that when we are in Christ, when the work of conversion, the work of regeneration, the work of God's grace has happened in our life, nothing is the same. Nothing remains the same. Everything is new. The old becomes new. The old creature dies. The new creature is born again to newness of life in Christ Jesus. And Paul in this chapter is wanting us to understand. And so he repeats it over and over. He says, I want you to know there's a significance in knowing death and life. There's a significance in knowing separation and union. There's a significance in knowing slaves to sin, but now slaves to God. There is freedom that's found only in having the right master. We talked about that all last week. That there's only freedom, real freedom, found in following and having the right master. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of our Lord again this morning as I begin reading in in verse 19. Well, really verse 18, even though that's the middle of a sentence. I want to start there. 18 through 22. Still haven't gotten to 23. We'll get to that, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. Next week's Lord's Supper. We'll look at a psalm and come around the Lord's table. But hear hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 6. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and, and, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And sanctification is what we want to think about this morning, that, that process of spiritual growth, if you will, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. That is, there was no righteousness in your life. You didn't desire righteousness. You didn't pursue righteousness. But, but because you are now, you were free to righteousness, but, but what fruit, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The end of obedience to sin, the end of slavery to sin, the end of being an enemy of righteousness and an enemy of Christ, an enemy of God, before conversion leads to death, Paul says. But, but now, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, doulos of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification. Second mention of that word sanctification by Paul. The only two times in the whole book. And its end leads to eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in 
Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, we've dealt with this over and over again over the last few weeks. Some of you probably left here thinking, boy, Bill sounds like a broken record. He's talking about being dead to self, dead to sin, alive to God, alive to Christ, union with Christ, leaving the slavery to sin and, and slavery to unrighteousness and, coming and becoming a slave of righteousness, a slave of God, a, a, a slave of obedience. Because Paul beats that drum loud and beats that drum clear in this passage of Scripture, this chapter 6. It is the central idea of this book. It is the central understanding of what Paul is wanting us to see about this newness of life. And he's wanting us to see above everything else that life in Christ is a radical change life. It's not the same. Could never be the same would be totally inconsistent with the gospel if it were to remain the same. But the question I want to think about this morning, as we come to think about sanctification, as the sermon title says, sanctification means all in for you and me both, for all of us. What does it mean? How, how, do we, how, how practically do we live out and maintain our freedom from sin? You know, there's some people that will tell you, if you're really dead to sin and really free from sin, then you will never have another sin in your whole life. You will now rise to perfection. You will now rise to a point that every deed that you do, every thought that you have, every word that you speak is absolute purity and absolute perfection. And I want to tell you something. If that's true, there's not a one of us in this room, including the pastor, uh, who is saved, who is regenerate, because sin is still a struggle that we go through every single day that we live. So how do we practically live out this reality? And it is a reality that we have been set free from sin, set free from the power of sin in this life, right now, on this earth, and, and, but how do we practically live that? I think the principle comes from verse 19, which I want you to notice comes after verse 18. It's import, that's important. It's there that way for a reason, even though Paul didn't do the verses and the chapters, but he wrote this statement after saying, you know, and, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Then in, in verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We, we spoke last week about how this conversion brings us into a new realm. It puts a new power into us. It puts a, a new reality into our life. It, it's not living naturally anymore. It's not living by my own strength. It's not living in just because I can get better and be better and do better. It's living supernaturally, the power of Christ's Spirit dwell, dwelling in us, abiding in us, living in us, and literally living through us. Again, not with perfection. I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones stated it. When he said in his commentary on verse 19, he said, The New Testament method or way of sanctification, therefore, is to get us to realize our position and our standing. So Lloyd-Jones says the first thing we have to do is we have to realize, recognize, or as Paul says, reckon or see that it's true what our real standing is in Christ and, and what our position is in Christ before God the Father. And then he goes on to say, and when we realize our position and standing, we are to act accordingly. We're, we're to act accordingly. accordingly. It's like Paul said to the Philippian Christians when he said, listen, you who are in Christ, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying there, work for your salvation. He's not saying work in order to get your salvation. He's saying what you have been given by the work of God and by the Spirit of God, make it your desire, make it your, your goal in life to work out that which has been worked in you. Let it be seen. Let it be known. Let it become a reality. You realize and you recognize who you are, what your position and standing is, and then you act accordingly. He goes on to say, this is the New Testament way of teaching holiness. That's what the New Testament tells us over and over again. And I can spend the rest of the afternoon just listing passages that tell you 
that, that you are to think about who you are in Christ. You are to know who you are in Christ and then to act on accordingly with it. That's where the New Testament teaches holiness. In other words, Paul is saying, be what you are. Be what you are. If you are in Christ, if Christ has done a work in you, then everywhere you go, every day you live, be what He has made you. How often are we told, Lloyd-Jones says, that we need something further. We, we need something more. We need a second act. We need a second grace or something. But there is no indication of that anywhere in this passage. It's because of what has already happened. It's because of what is true of us that this command is addressed to us to offer ourselves as slaves of righteousness. Notice Paul did not say anything about a command to us. We, we, talk, we dealt with this a little bit last week. He, he did not say anything to us about a command, an imperative, until he told us what had happened within us. And he said, if that has happened in you, and for the true believer it has, the one who's truly come to Christ it has, if that has happened in you, then present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Paul makes that very clear. And so that's kind of the principle there. Be who you are if you are in Christ. Don't live like you once were. Don't try to, don't try to do it in your own strength, but live in accordance with who it is. So that's the principle. The practice of it on a daily basis begins to work itself out. It means coming to daily situations and recognizing the possibility of treating God as our highest good and thus our master. Now think about that. What does it mean to treat God as your highest good? It means to realize that He is who He says He is. He has done what He has said He has done. He has called you by name into His marvelous grace. He's called you out of a realm of darkness and sin into the realm of His kingdom and His glorious light. He has called you out of death into life. I mean, you can go on and on with the, the imagery that's used in the New Testament to talk about how God has done such a great work that He is indeed our highest good. We look to Him. We worship Him. We glorify Him because He is that. The problem arises, at least at times, and then we only recognize that when we're sitting in this room for an hour and a half or so on any given Sunday morning. The problem is we just kind of acknowledge that when we sing these great songs and great hymns of faith. You know, we, we, we sing unto Him. We sing about how, you know, He is our cornerstone. We sing about the glories of Calvary. We, we hear this beautiful choir sing about, or, or group sing about, you know, be still my soul, the Lord is on your side. He's talking in that song, the songwriter, to himself. Now, he's encouraging us to sing the same and to say the same. Be still, my soul. When, when the, you know, that, that ministered me this morning more than I can tell you. Because, I'll do this. Quite honestly, I came in here this whole week. My soul has not been still. I'm in trouble. Not by anything you've done or, or anybody, well, nobody in Somerset has done. But I was troubled in my soul because of a broken relationship. And I sang with you. I sang those words with you. Because, you know, sometimes you cannot... You cannot change what other people do. I would say you never can change what other people do. You can remember, be still my soul. Because the Lord is on my side to comfort, to care, to, to strengthen. And of course, when my soul is not still, I'm ugly to everybody. I'm short. I'm critical. Be still my soul. 
The Lord's on your side. Okay, I didn't mean to get into confession this morning. We have to see God as our highest good and thus our master. Our problem is that we spend a lot of time thinking about something else as our highest good. Our job, our relationships, our our possessions. Those are what really give us security and really give us hope. And, and, really, and, and we'll talk about some of that later when we get into chapter 7 and, and 8. But, but we, we think about, well, that is, that's where my highest good is. God, you're good. I, I acknowledge that and I don't deny that. You're good. But this is what really I treasure. This is what really I value more than anything else. And God, I'll give you attention. And I'll give you glory and i'll give you worship and honor and praise if there's nothing going on that i value more paul begins both of these sections verse 1 verse 15 in this section with a question and the question is what his adversaries were asking because Paul had talked about in verse 5 about the glory of the grace of God and the glory of having our sins forgiven past, present, and future. The glory of of us being right with God. And you'll get into Romans 8 that, that I talked about before I prayed this morning. You know, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's enemy said, well, then that means you just trust Jesus and go out and sin because where sin abounds, Grace abounds all the more. Right, Paul? Just go and sin all you want to. And so Paul asked that question in verse 6. What are we to say? Are we to continue in sin? He asked that both times. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And in, in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And both times he immediately answers that rhetorical question, By no means. God forbid. That is a total misunderstanding of the gospel. But you know what? It's it's really the question that is whispered in our ear over and over and over by the tempter. It it really is the question that is the, the question that is whispered by the greatest enemies of the gospel and even Satan himself. It's really the same question that he asked Eve in the garden. When he came up to Eve and said, you know, hey, let me ask you something. Uh, has God said that you're not to eat of any tree, to, uh, tree of this garden? He starts planting doubt in his, her mind that led to the fall. He comes to us and says, don't you know that, that grace is, and he can quote the Bible better than you can, Satan can. Don't you know that grace abounds when sin abounds? Don't you know that when there is sin, grace just covers it up? And, and don't you know that if you're in Christ, you can do this sin right now and it won't, it won't affect you, it won't affect anybody, it won't mean anything? Paul says, are we to continue in sin as a way of life? As a continuing way of life? As a habitual following? He says, heavens, no. So when we hear that question to ourselves, when the, when, the, when, the, when the enemy Satan says to us, you know, you really can go ahead and do this sin. It, it's, it's disobedient to God, yes. But remember, you prayed the prayer. You were baptized. You're a member of the church. So no matter what your sin is, God has to forgive you for it. That's what's known as presumptuous sin. Uh, David talked about that when he prayed. And he said, Lord, in, 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 I believe Psalm 19, he said, Lord, Lord, guard your servant from presumptuous sins that they won't rule over me. See, presumptuous sins will rule over you. They will lead you into greater than presumptuous sins, those what we would call little sins that we say, well, it's no big deal because God forgives me and I'll be forgiven. But little sins, as in David's life, leads to bigger sins. David says, guard your servant from presumptuous sins. So so what do you say when the tempter comes along and says to you, you really ought to do this because, you know, it really is fun. It really feels good. 
you'll really enjoy this. I know God said you shouldn't do it, but, but listen, does, here, here's the question you probably asked. Does God want you to be unhappy? How many times have you heard that? Here's what you have to answer. By no means. Even in my notes, I've got that in about 20-point font. By no means. That's the words that Paul uses here when he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And are we to sin because we're not under law or we're under grace? By no means. So, so what is the reason we give for rebutting the devil's enticements? It's very simple. We, we give two things. We, we, are, we, we tell him what we are. We are one with Christ. And if I obey you, I take Christ into that if I really belong to Christ. And, 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 and if I don't want to take him there. That's what he deals with in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And then verses 15 through 23 we don't only tell him what we are, and we're one with Christ, in union with Christ, but we tell him whose we are. We are slaves of God through the blood of Christ Jesus. We are slaves of God because we have been bought out of sin into his righteousness, out of sin into his grace. And so we can say by his power of abiding with us, by no means. So what's the implications of that? The implications of these two truths are inescapable. If we are one with Christ, which we are, if we're in Christ, then with Christ we have died to sin and we live to God. Paul makes that clear in this chapter. Secondly, if we are enslaved to God, if we're doulases of God, doulases of Christ, which we are if we are in Christ, then ipso facto, we are committed to obedience. Lord. That's, that's the word we use. Lord. We, we, don't, talk about, we don't talk about employee uh, employer. We don't talk about somebody that we can give something to if they give us something in return and we can earn our way. No, we talk about Lord, one who owns us, one who has bought us, one to whom we belong. And thirdly, the implication of that truth is that it's inconceivable that we should willfully persist in sin. Not inconceivable that we will sin but inconceivable that we will continually and willfully persist in sin, presuming upon the grace of God, presumptuous sins. God, I'm yours, so you've got to forgive me. A dangerous position to be in. The very thought, the very thought is intolerable for the believer. And Paul is saying, you need to reckon that. You need to realize that. You need to believe that. You need to walk in that. We must constantly remind ourselves of these truths. We, we need to talk to ourselves about them and ask ourselves, don't you know? Don't you know that you are one with Christ? Don't you know that my soul can be stilled because I am in Christ? Don't you know, self? Don't you know you've died to sin? Don't you know that I am a slave to God and therefore I'm committed to obedience to Him? Oh, self, don't you know? There's a line of counseling that I don't necessarily subscribe to, so I'll give that caveat up front, but called self-talk. You know, but sometimes... Self-talk is important in asking ourselves questions. Asking ourselves, have we died with Christ? Don't you know that to be in Christ is to die with Christ? Are you a slave to Christ? Have you so sold out? Or as the title of the sermon is, are you all in with Christ? Not in on Sunday, not in occasionally, but you all in 
That really is the concept of sanctification. We'll talk more about sanctification next week, but, but sanctification is that process by one, for one who is justified, declared righteous, imputed righteousness, one who has been justified now begins the walk in the process of God doing a work of sanctifying them in His truth. Paul talks about it other places. I love, he tells the Thessalonians, says, do you want to know the will of God for your life? The will of God for your life is that you be sanctified. The will of God for your life is sanctification. That's God's will for your life and my life above everything else. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15, he, he gives as good illustration as anywhere in the New Testament about this pattern of thinking as an outstanding example. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me. I hope you've got them. Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians. This is my conclusion, just to let you know. So be ready. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. I'm going to read it first, and I'm going to break it down briefly. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this end, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, that is, the truths that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul says, here is the essence of sanctification. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. You are loved by Christ. His love never fails. His love never ceases. It's an everlasting love. It's an abiding love. Why ought they to give thanks? Why ought I give thanks for you even as your pastor? Why should I do it? Because God chose you as the first fruits. God did a work in your life and brought you to faith in Christ by His Holy Spirit that you might be a first fruit, maybe a first fruit in your family, maybe a first fruit in your neighborhood, maybe a first fruit where you work. But He brought you, He did this so that He chose you that you might be a first fruit for the glory of God. That's why He did it. For what purpose did He do it? To save you? That you might be saved? as that first fruit. How? He, he did it through the sanctification of the Spirit and, and belief in the truth. Again, back to Jesus in John chapter 17. Father, I pray for them. I pray not just for these with me, but I pray for those who will come after them because of their testimony. And Father, I ask you to make them holy. Sanctify them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So through sanctification... In the truth is how it's done. By what means? To this he called you through our gospel, Paul says. It's the means of the gospel. The gospel call that calls men and women to faith in Christ. And what is God's final goal? So that you, believers, may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we might obtain the glory of Christ. That we might see His glory, be in His glory, revel in His glory, worship in His glory, understand His glory for all our lives. And what are the implications of that? So, so then, brothers, stand firm. Stand firm when the enemy comes against you. Stand firm when, when you're persecuted for your faith, as those early Christians were. And as more and more, we're going to see that in the world. Brothers and sisters of ours across the world are being persecuted. Stand firm and hold to the traditions or the truths that you were taught, either by our spoken word or by our letter. In other words, what we taught you about Christ, stand firm in that. Don't let the age of relativism say, well, you know, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. I, I, I just love hearing politicians talk about how, well, that's her truth. And we have to follow her truth. Well, my truth is different. So whose truth is truth? One isn't. Maybe both aren't in some cases. But 
we can't fall for a spirit of relativism that does not say there is an absolute objective truth. And that's what sanctifies us, and that's what leads us to obedience in Christ. You were taught, and you're to live in it. Live in the truth of traditions that you're taught by the spoken word or by our letter, by that truth that God has communicated. Live in it. Walk in it. Meditate upon it. Use it in your prayers. Pray the Scripture. Let the Scripture speak to you and 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 challenge you and, and, and bring conviction to you. Folks, His Word is truth. It's not just His truth and you got your truth. His Word is truth. And if your truth doesn't agree with His truth, your truth ain't truth at all. I know it's bad grammar, but it's true. Sanctification is all in. It is not partially in. So Paul's thinking is always this. God has done this for you in Christ. Therefore, you should respond in the following ways. Sanctification, being all in, being devoted to God, devoted to Christ. Sanctification is always the fruit of His work of setting us apart in and through Christ. What is God's will for you? Your sanctification. What is God's will for you? Your spiritual growth. What is God's will for you? Do you know, for you to know what God's Word says, and when Satan lies to you to say, may it never be, may it never be, because I belong to a master. I belong to Christ. May it never be. Let's pray together.